How's everybody doing? Doing good? Okay, a couple of us. This section? All right. Um, well, um, it's, it's my privilege to introduce to you a friend and a, a mentor of mine. Um, his name's John Peters. We have been, he has been leading a weekend for us um, uh, called Empowered. If you were able to join us Friday and Saturday, we had an extraordinary time. We got to spend some time together worshiping, praying, and just growing as a community that wants to desire the gifts of the Spirit, uh, and, and not just for, um, for the Sunday use or church use, but for everyday um, use as well. And so that was an incredible time, and I'm sure we're going to be hear- hearing stories about that in the next coming weeks. Um, but John is a vicar of a church in, an Anglican church in London. He uh, leads a great church there. He's planted several churches around the world, and he's very familiar with going into context and and kind of teaching what his heartbeat is, which is to see the church kind of flourish um, as a church that participates in the things that the New Testament describes um, from the from from the Gospels to Revelation, and that is the Spirit of God moving and dwelling and actively participating with His people. And so this morning, John's going to come up. John, come on up. Let's welcome him. Um, it's been great having you. Thank you for being here. And here you go. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's always, I'll say it's always, it was wonderful. Last time I was here, it's wonderful to be back. I mean, surely there's no better place to have a church than in a bar. Fantastic. Um, I know this is a little bit irregular and all, but um, what's your name? Barb, are you visiting? Do you normally come here? That's interesting. Because I, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about the presence of God, that song we just sang about. It occurred to me that um, I, I really love the presence of God as well. And I, I'm going to tell you a certain sense in which I mean that. But I did think, Bob, that you could, um, I could see that you do. And uh, I was thinking that you could actually um, help people here understand worship. I'll just leave that with you. Um, okay, so basically, um, this is what the presence of God means for me. Um, so Darren um, came to join, uh, to join us with something we do in the summer last year. It's a conference called New Wine, and um, it's about as wild as the English get. And uh, basically, uh, Darren did some brilliant speaking in the mornings, and the group of people weren't what we expected. I thought they were going to be um, sort of um, much more experienced in, in the things to do with the power of the Spirit than they actually were. And uh, I discovered that actually they didn't really know much about the power of the Spirit, how to open themselves to the presence of God, or, or how to help other people experience the power of God either. Um, and however, as Darren spoke, I think because he was obviously a very good speaker, but also he was fresh and different, and he, he said some familiar things in the, with a new voice and a new way, and that helped people. And then we had a whole lot of people telling their various stories all the time. And you know how when people tell their stories in church, it can be absolutely terrible, kill me now sort of experience, you know. What on earth are you even saying? That kind of thing. But sometimes it can be amazing. And basically, this is one of those times where it was really amazing. For example, we had three former drug dealers, two of whom are women, talking about how they become Christians in the last few months. It was a very raw and uh, extraordinary. And it lifted people's faith and expectation in a big way. So the longer we, the longer we went on praying for people, the more power there was. And in the end, this is, this is the kind of thing I mean by the presence of God. Darren um, spoke in the morning one time about... Um, uh, about um, 
the, uh, the, the, the leper and how Jesus healed the leper and everything. And he asked people to come forward um, if they wanted to make a response to what he said. Anyway, this guy goes forward. Um, he's not, Darren's not talking about physical healing. But the guy goes forward, and he, he's standing there, and, he, and he, he told everybody afterwards that while he was standing there, a curvature of the spine that he'd had for his whole life was straightened. Just while he was standing there, nobody even prayed for him. It was incredible. And that's what I mean by loving the presence of God. Or I mean uh, uh, my friend Matt, who's a young guy, and he found um, about a year ago that he was becoming more and more anxious and more and more claustrophobic. And it came on him from nowhere, and it got worse and worse. Got to the stage where he couldn't get in the car, couldn't go on the tube, couldn't get on a train. And uh, he, he was leading worship, and what he'd have to do is play a song and then run off to prove to himself that he could get out if he wanted to. It was getting more and more of a problem. And uh, he was in the presence of God in some period of worship or something. And somebody said that they felt there were claustrophobic people that needed to be prayed for. And Matt goes forward. Somebody prays for him. He feels nothing whatsoever. But he has to leave straight away. Gets in a car. Gets on a train. Gets on the tube. Absolutely no problems at all. Completely made well. That's what I mean by the presence of God. Or I mean, um, <clears throat> or I mean uh, this is a story which is very... Um, that's, uh, very, that's uh, very precious to me, and it came from the last time we were here. Um, and <clears throat> I imagine quite a few of you have heard this, but just in case some of you haven't. Um, it, it features John and, uh, and Lydia, who I see. Is, oh, there they are. There they are. I'd ask you to say it yourself, but you just go on for too long. So basically, uh, um, quite early on, um, when, when Chris and I were here last time, we're meeting, we're meeting some people, and we had a meal um, with John and Lydia, and, you know, uh, it was all very socially polite and nice kind of ethnically cleansed food and everything, and, and um, uh, everything's fine, and, uh, and then John starts talking about his garden thing, you know, and how he got the inspiration to do this garden thing, and as I'm looking at him, I'm, I think to myself, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of faith, that is faith, and I, I could see sort of faith. And I, I then thought, um, I actually quite fancy praying for them now. Um, I know we've just had dinner and all, but I think, um, I think we should do it now. So I say that. And I remember, you know, Chris in particular was very depressed because he was sort of jet-lagged off his face. And he doesn't care with travel well or, in, fa in fact, lots of things. And, and basically, he was, he was just sort of dribbling away into, into exhaustion. And he, and he didn't, oh, I'm not praying for anyone. Anyway, so basically, um, so, but he couldn't say that. He's too polite. So um, it's the curse of the English. So basically, we... we um, I said, would you mind if we pray for you? And, and we, we pray for people in a particular way, which ironically we learned from Californians um, um, called the Vineyard Movement. And we've been doing this way of praying forever now. Um, and basically, uh, I said, would you like to stand and maybe open your hands, close your eyes, and would you like to ask God to give you the power of his spirit? And I'm, I'm going to pray for you, add my prayers to yours. So they're standing there, you know, next to each other. And uh, I, I start with John, and I'm praying for him. And, you know, he looks like he's sort of opening himself to God. Lydia looks like she'd rather kill someone. And they're, they're sort of standing there looking quite frightened. You know, she's quite frightened. Anyway, so then we have a we swap over, you know, and I, and I have a go at Lydia. Chris has a go at John. And basically, when Chris is praying for John, he has this image coming into his mind of a little league baseball game and a, and a child looking for his father. And he basically says this to John, at which point, and I can say this because John's spoken about this publicly lots of times, I know, but basically, I suppose the Holy Spirit touched him in a big way, and he fell to the ground and starts crying, and he's really in a lot of pain, and expressing a huge amount of pain, 
And, um, and then he's rolling around on the floor, and we have to move the furniture out of the way. And then the people from downstairs come upstairs because they think there's a burglary going on. And meanwhile, John's still crashing around on the floor, and Lydia is thinking, you've killed my husband. What have you done to my husband? And so, and so on. And uh, so she's not being prayed for anymore. She's just staring, you know. And, um, and basically, we're saying, don't worry, it's perfectly normal. Which actually it is, but um, it's easier if you've seen it before. And so uh, after a while, I will always remember John coming around saying, There is so much love! <laughs> He's filled with this sense of being loved by God. But, the, but the, you know, the story is that when he was younger, uh, his father used to watch him play Little League Baseball, but one time told him and his sister that he could no longer be there. And, uh, and, and, you know, left them. And so this is, this is a pain that had been there forever. And it, the presence of God, though, means that that sort of pain can be healed. And that's why I love the presence of God. <clears throat> so, I just, while I was, while I was um, thinking about you and asking God, who is here, which I sometimes do. Um, I, I feel that there is some good news today. For um, I don't know whether this is an individual person or a few people. Some of these are a bit generic. I don't really know, so I'll just put it out there. I, I think there are people here who have been divorced but have not been able to forgive themselves. And also people who've been bereaved, who've not been able to get round the question, why did God take them away? I can see people who are addicted to drugs. And sometimes, you know, simply coming forward and letting somebody pray for you ends it there and then, amazingly. And my big number one least favorite would be people who are actually frightened that if they come into the presence of God, he will punish them or, or that he will be disappointed with them. And that's a massive problem. I've had that conversation with several people here during my time. And what, what they're doing, you see, is they're projecting onto God their own experiences of their human fathers, which, you know, no human father is perfect, but some human fathers really do manage to <laughs> inject into their kids quite a lot of fear. And therefore, when we come into the presence of God, we assume that God is like that. God is not like that. God is like what I'm going to talk about. Okay? So, that's just, uh, you didn't pay for any of that. That's completely free. So, um, <clears throat> I'd like to offer some bad news and some good news. This first bit's a little bit depressing, um, but it gets better. Uh, I'd like to read to you a slightly scary sort of passage from the book of Isaiah, briefly. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Now, this is a description of what happens 
when people are not so much in touch with the presence of God. This is a description of what I am like and what you are like when we are less in touch with God's presence. So we're starting with the negative and then we'll move on to the positive. So if, we are, if we're not so much dwelling in the presence of God, the first thing that tends to happen is that rules tend to reassert themselves. Verse 13, um, <clears throat> these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. So what that means is for us is that we turn up, but we aren't really present. There's a sense of going through the motions without the heart being engaged. At its worst, this condition is such that going through the motions takes the place of relationship with Jesus. And we substitute one for the other. And the logical conclusion of this, logical conclusion of this is called legalism. And that is religion without reality. What we need to remember is that Christianity is not a religion. Religion is the heart of our rebellion against God. Christianity is a relationship, and you cannot legalize a relationship, legislate a relationship. We may lose touch, but we still perfect a rote performance that appears to tick a box and maybe even maintain a reputation. At a personal level, when we lose touch with the presence of God, other old rules begin to resurface as well. And we may find ourselves battling with old perceptions of people's judgments about us, by which we do not live when we're more aware of the presence of God. So we just find ourselves entertaining constantly thoughts about, you know, what am I worth? Um, what, fear of rejection, all that kind of stuff. We live with rules and laws about what we can do and what we can't do based on really what other people have said to us. We're not, we're not hearing the voice of God because we're not in his presence. So we hear other voices and they torment us. Second problem when we're slightly less in touch with the presence of God is that human wisdom becomes more important than God's wisdom. Therefore, verse 14, oh, hang on. Um, the wisdom of the wise will perish, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. So when we, when we are less aware of the presence of God, we start to do things our way, basically. No longer really seeking God for his wisdom and direction, but still really needing wisdom and direction to get through life. We turn back to the familiar, which is basically us. And we look to our own wisdom and to that of other people that we've looked to before to guide us and give us wisdom. And we come to overvalue um, uh, you know, worldly insight, not that that's without any value, but we overvalue it and we forget that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. It's so easy in the complex dilemmas we face in life in relation to work or running our lives or our relationships or whatever um, to, to slip back into uninspired ways of viewing people, situations and making decisions based on, you know, whatever, the best I could do at the time. And then moving on through, if we are less in touch with the presence of God, secret sins, things that you would be really embarrassed if other people knew about, start to get a grip. And there's a reason for that. No longer turning to God to be satisfied by him, but still needing to be satisfied, we return to familiar and broken ways of behaving. We all do. Now, if you've been playing the Christian game for any while, you will know that uh, we can't be rescued from the power of these sorts of patterns of behavior except by Jesus. But not just that. 
We cannot go on being set free unless we dwell in the presence of God. We've got to keep on dwelling in the presence of God. It's not a one-off hit. And we need to go on being changed. Otherwise, old things return. Because we still need to be comforted. And we still need to be satisfied. So when we become dull and less responsive to the presence of God, we allow other things which appear to fill us to come back in, things that we know to be wrong, even self-destructive. I find it quite amusing that, you know, I've never, I've never smoked. I'm, I'm grateful I never smoked as a teenager because it's obviously very difficult to deal with if you have as an addiction. Um, but basically, I, I just find it amusing that, you know, on the packets it says, smoking kills you. And, you, and yet you have people going, yep, give me the killing thing. Yep, thanks. Thanks a lot. Just a bit of death. Thank you very much. You know, even though we're at, we're, at, we're at participating in the death sentence. I just, you know. But we do that with lots of things. Things that kill us on the inside. Things that kill our relationships. Things that, that we know are killing us. Right? But it's because we've got a great big gaping hole that is either going to be filled with the presence of God or it's going to be filled with anything we can get our hands on. So where it is in life. I know I'm right because at least one person is nodding. Thank you. Appreciate that. We're getting through it. Then we begin to doubt God as well. Verse 16. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the, uh, the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? When we're less aware of the presence of God, we begin to drift away so that although we're physically present on occasions like this, inwardly we lose confidence. We lose confidence in God and we begin to entertain questions like, does God really care about me after all? Why isn't he doing anything to help? We lose hope and maybe we even fall for the ancient, ancient lie of the serpent in the garden, calling God's judgment into question. You will not surely die. If you do this or this, you're not going to die. I mean, God says, you will die. And the devil says, no, you're not going to die. And we start cooperating with that in certain things that we're doing in our lives. We question God. We question his judgment. The thing is, as the old saying goes, when God feels far away, it's not him that's moved. Anyway, sorry about all that. That's all about me as much as it is you. Um, why do we become dull? Why do we become less responsive to the presence of God? There's some really good reasons. Firstly, there is the opposition. Now, the thing is, you and I, the people sitting next to you, are of infinite importance. Tremendous, transformative, amazing importance. Person, you can say that to the person next to you. You are of infinite importance. Go on. Now, that's like muttering. Have a go. Look at them. You're of infinite importance. Shout it at them. That would be good. If we're firing on all cylinders with the flag of faith flying high in our sky, believe me, we are truly scary, dangerous beings. I've seen that again and again and again, but I think about this one person that personifies it for me. Young girl, goes to university, escapes the engagement of her family. Her family is very traditional, and her role is just to be a girly girl and do nothing and say nothing. She breaks away from that. She goes to university. She sets up a Christian union. It grows to 100 people. It wasn't there before. She started it, and it's voted top society in the university by the secular bodies because it's so much fun. Meanwhile, when she's not doing that, she sets up a dance thing on a, on a 
poor estate. Tons of kids come in, and it transforms the estate. She does that in a year. Bang! That is how dangerous we can be if we're doing the thing that we're made to do. It's an example. Then she comes back into the family again, and it all goes... And then she breaks out again, thanks be to God. These things are difficult to deal with. I'm just using that as an example of the transformative power of one person doing their thing with what they've got. However, if there's ever a nation that understands that, it is you guys. That is why our enemy does everything in his power to destabilize and neutralize us. That's his job. You need to take it seriously. We do not need to worry about whether there's a demon behind every little, you know, light lamp post. But we need to take seriously if something's stopping us from actually being who we're supposed to be. There will be a reason, and it won't just be a matter of flesh and blood. You should see what's happened to me since we, I've been trying to do this. So I did a version of this in England two weeks ago. And I'm telling you, everything that could be thrown at me was thrown at me. And not just me. The elders of this place, a lot of them got sick. Darren's wife, as you mentioned, is sick right now. And so on and so on. Everything that could be thrown at you. It's thrown at you when you try and do this stuff. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do it. It means you just laugh in the face of the devil and get on with it. But it, it's an ugly fight sometimes. And I'm speaking to people who simply aren't even in gear. Those are the people I'm interested in this morning who've been so de-geared, they're just not them. And unfortunately, you will know who you are. Except fortunately, there's an opportunity to change that. So um, the attacks on our lives can be like full frontal assaults, but usually what happens is it's clever, and we lose our way gradually and slowly one compromise at a time until we no longer recognize ourselves. I met a guy um, on this evangelistic course we do, extremely handsome guy, and he said he got a secret and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to guess what it is. He keeps sort of alluding to the secret. He finally tells me what the secret is, which is he's a male prostitute. And I suddenly realized the people he's also bought with him are also prostitutes. And uh, basically, he told me what he did before. Do you know what he did before? He led a church. Do you know what began the process? He, he was following the Spirit. He was doing amazing things. And he realized that all the churches around him hated him because he was succeeding. So he just lost heart. And that began the process of losing it completely. Unfortunately, you can become someone you don't even recognize. That's one reason, because we've got opposition. That's why we become unresponsive, and we should take that seriously. Secondly, because walking in the Holy Spirit in the presence of God simply is not natural. Let me tell you what natural is. Walking in the flesh. We are very, very good at that. We're very experienced. We've been doing it forever, and it feels a lot better. We know exactly how to do that thing. We're not so sure about walking in the Spirit. And generally speaking, we have a little trot in the Spirit, and then we go straight back to walk in the flesh, because that's what we're used to. And actually, as people trying to follow God, we yo-yo between the two states, between trying to be in the presence of God and actually, obviously, indulging ourselves and cocking it up. Thirdly, we find ourselves becoming unresponsive to God because things happen. In a broken, fallen world, things happen that are genuinely hard to cope with from a human point of view and from a spiritual point of view. It can take time to assimilate them into a believing perspective. Why did my father die? Why did I go through a divorce, etc.? These things are genuinely painful, traumatic things, and it's hard to assimilate them into a believing perspective. 
Fourthly, life changes happen to us. We may go through exciting seasons like getting married, having children, or starting to date, or getting a demanding job or whatever, but we may lose a job or a relationship that was important to us. We might not be able to find that special relationship. We may not know what we're called to do, and we may have been trying to make something happen for a long time, and it doesn't seem to be working out. Again, these are like tumultuous life circumstances, and it takes time to find where God is in those circumstances. And so what we tend to do, some of us, in fact, all of us, if we've been playing the game, we look back nostalgically to a time when the presence of God seemed to be more real for us. And we just want it to be like that. And then stupid Christians will say things to you like, well, you need to rediscover your first love. Ever heard that one? You just need to find your first love. Can I just tell you that no one rediscovers their first love? Why? Because it's their first flipping love. It's ecstatic. It's novel. And that is why it will never, ever be repeated. However, the presence of God can certainly be restored in us. That's different, though. Novelty, the one thing about novelty is it can never be recaptured. That's the point. That's okay. It's life. Just saying. Got to live in the real world. We can't go back. Instead, what we have to do is learn to engage with God now, today. 5th of February, it is. I had a little check earlier on in the first service, and, and I was wrong. I thought it was the 4th. It's actually the 5th just for your information. Um, <clears throat> don't want to spend any time, you know, wishing we were somewhere else. If we're going to trust God, we need to do it today where we actually are. So anyway, how does God respond to us when we lose touch, when we, it's getting better now, when we, when we are no longer quite as aware of his presence? What does God do? Well, let's just bear in mind that real spiritual dullness leads to some truly unpleasant things. Like legalism, human inspiration, the cherishing of comfort sins, and cynicism about God. Some pretty unpleasant things. What should God do? Let me tell you what God should do. He should find someone else. He should find someone that can live the life worthy of his calling. He shouldn't rely on people like you and I, who under just a little bit of pressure, behave as though we've never even heard of him, who know what we ought to do, but we do the opposite anyway. He should find some better material to work with. What does God actually do, though? What does he actually do? Well, this is the merciful wisdom of God. In the face of all this crap, this is what God does. Verse 14. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. That's what God does. He confronts our spiritual dullness with the miraculous, with his presence. That's what he does. And that's what we've seen all weekend. I realize that uh, a lot of you weren't able to come. It's a shame because we saw some absolutely astonishing things. And I think people would say that their sense of the presence of God was renewed. Your call. I'll probably be coming back just to warn you. So we could say this together. I'll say it a couple of times. God prefers mercy to judgment. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. God prefers mercy to judgment. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Let's say that. God prefers mercy to judgment. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Let's say it again. God prefers mercy to judgment. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So we have a wonderful God in reality who refuses to treat us 
as hired hands to, to be dispensed with when we fail. He continues to regard us as sons and daughters, no matter what. He draws us back like lost sheep, no matter where we've been. He understands what we're like, despite everything, and he has compassion upon us because he loves us. Probably the most important thing to know about God is that he is not loving. He is love. What that means is he cannot but love you. He really, really does. God is nice and he likes you. He loves you. How do we know? Because he sent his son to die for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to die for us. So nothing to do with you. God's love for you is not based on your performance at all, not at all. In every other relationship you will ever have, it will all be about your performance level, basically, or something about you, something personal to you. But the fact is, with God, his love comes from him. Ah, but you want to say, what about all my sin? Yeah, he has thought of that. And what he did was he did something about it, right? So imagine now we are in a jungle fire. I'm sure you experienced this in California. Basically, there's a jungle fire going on. What is the only safe ground in a jungle fire? The only safe ground is a place where the fire has already burnt. If you can find a place where the fire has already burnt and moved on and stand there, the fire may burn all around you, but you will be safe. So you know the fire that you deserve, that I deserve, because of all the naughty things we've ever done, said or thought, or will do, say and think. Basically, the fire has already fallen, and it fell on the one person in whom there was none of it, Jesus. With the consequence that anybody who looks to him need not Fear the judgment or punishment of God. It does say in the Bible, perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment, right? You're not supposed to fear the punishment of God. And what you really want to do is if you've had a slightly shitty father or a father that just wasn't perfect or in particular a father that was a bit abusive, could you fire him as your God? In other words, when you come into the presence of God the Father, do you think you could possibly have the courage to fire the image of your father and replace him with God? God the lover, God the passionate, God the compassionate, God the one who delights in you, who rejoices over you with singing all the time, even when you screw it up. Would that be possible? You know what? Christians talk about faith, don't they? That's faith. That's enough faith for today, just believing that. God is nice and he likes me. See, it's not really often about terribly complex things with Christianity. It's about just believing some nice things. And if you really believe those nice things, you can go and be incredibly nice to other people. Jesus loved people with a deep compassion. We're told that again and again and again. Why did he? Because he knew himself to be deeply and compassionately loved by his father. And he dwelt in the presence of his father. And he did extraordinary miracles in the lives of other people because he knew himself to be loved. Do you? If you don't, it's because you have a false God in your heart and mind when you come into the presence of God. Why is it that some people like Barb cry when they worship the Lord and look like they're actually talking to someone and stick their hands in the air and look happy? And other people, you, you're standing there like a rock. Why is it? Because you're worshipping the wrong God. Let's just get hold of the real one. One of the, one of the things that confirmed to me that Christianity might actually be true. When I was a young Christian, was um, seeing this guy in the, in the worship group, 
And you know what? He was clearly engaged in a conversation. And it was a conversation that he liked. And every time the singing was there, he was just away in his own world. I mean, he's a brilliant musician. He played the piano and everything. But he obviously didn't care who was there, who wasn't there, what he was doing. He just did it. And he did it for God. And I could see it written all over his face. I'm running this course at the moment for people that don't believe in God. We do what we do all the time. I've got a great group. None of them are Christians. And um, basically, we, we start with week one, which is, you know, what meaning do we attribute to our lives? No, no Christian content whatsoever. People go around talking about the meanings that, they've, that they give to their lives. And there's this one, um, there's this one woman, it gets to her, and, um, and she, she um, can't answer the question. She says, I'm here because I do not know why I get out of bed in the morning. She's a bit older than the others. But the others have all got the same question. It's just not quite so painful. But now she's older, it's more painful. And then in the second week, she goes, um, she goes, um, <clears throat> there was a guy here last week, she says, and he, and he when we went round the room and asked, answered the question, there was one guy that sort of helped me lead the group, and he, and he gave his answer, and he talked about his faith. And she said, she said in the second week, you know, the thing is, I know that he knows the answer, because I can see it on his face. So we have a passionate God who delights to pour out the renewing power of his spirit, often immediately and discernibly in signs and wonders. It's what he does. It's what we've seen throughout the weekend. Now, the process by which we get into the wrong place can be a gradual one. But once we've seen that we're actually in that place, and we've got ourselves into it, and we want to return, the speed with which we can be fully restored, is electrifying. It's electrifying. I really enjoyed that. That's the high point for me. And so God's primary tactic in the face of human dullness and failure is to break in and remind us that he's alive and well. That's what he does. That he hasn't changed, that he's present, that he still loves us. And as I said... I, I think we've been seeing that throughout the time that we've been here. And we saw it last time as well when we came. It does involve a little bit of a paradigm change for people who've grown up in church where this is not really so emphasized. I never grew up in any other kind of, you know, I, beca- I was an atheist. And basically when I became a Christian, this is all I've ever seen. So I've never known a sort of church experience without this kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm just fortunate. Okay, that's enough. Um, let's sing that nice song about the presence of God again. Um, and so what I recommend is, um, when it's played through the first time, sing the words. Second time, if you feel you're in the spotlight, why don't you talk to God about it? Have old rules started resurfacing? Do you think you're a bit of a legalist? Are you going through the motions? Is it secret sins? Are you doubting God? What is it? It doesn't have to, um, hopefully some of us, many of us, that, none of it, but if, if some of it is you, why don't you just talk face-to-face with God in the presence of God while we sing a song about the presence of God? We'll do that. And then I recommend coming forward and letting somebody pray for you. Even if you've never done that before in your life, 
Now, the reason for that is because we've trained people to pray for people, and they will be good at putting a hand on you and praying for you, praying for the presence of God to be renewed in you. And I would definitely recommend that, especially if you feel stirred in your heart, especially if you feel like somebody's put their finger on something. And can I say, especially if you are somebody who's suffering from the effects of a divorce, as I've said, or has a drug addiction, or has an unresolved bereavement, or who thinks that God is a frightening dude. Any of those, right? You don't need to say anything to anyone. Just come forward, say it to God, and then let them pray for you. Deal? Good. Let's stand.